0: Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to MedTech Speed to Data. I'm your host, Andy Rogers from KeyTech. Welcome back. We've got Lindsey Clark, our guest today from Microfluidic X. We'll, We'll talk more in a moment. And uh, Lei Zong from Key Tech, uh, Senior Computer Engineer and, and Partner. So, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Lei, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here.
0: We're going to jump right into it, uh, Lindsay. So, tell everybody who's watching here uh, a little bit about yourself, you know, your background, and you know, how you ended up at, at, uh, at Microfluidics and your role.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I'm currently heading up the, the commercial function at, at Microfluidx, which is a, a small UK-based startup Um, developing tools to streamline the the development and the translation of cell and gene therapies into manufacturing. So how did I end up there? Well, I think someone's described it as kind of a curvy career. So um, I originally trained as a scientist. So, you know, that typical uh, traditional pathway, I... Was a undergrad in pharmacology, um, did a, an industrial year um, in pharma, and realised I probably needed a PhD if I was going to stay in science. So I, um, I kind of. I guess, fell into a PhD in a similar area, which was immunology, inflammation and and rheumatic diseases. But I was actually really lucky because it was one of the first kind of four-year PhD programs they had here where you got to do rotations in different labs to find out if you got on with your supervisor um, in advance, which was quite nice. But also it was to kind of bridge the gap between the clinic and research. And so I spent a lot of time in clinics with uh, like a medical student going in and and talking with patients, and, and understanding the impact that these diseases had on them, which, you know, looking back, I think really kind of drives my sort of passion for medical technologies and, and improving the lives of patients. So again, you know, traditional scientists, route in the lab, in my PhD at UCL, and then went, well, what should I do next? I know I'll do a postdoc. So I, I actually then transitioned, you know, again, similar area of research, um, inflammation and, and blood vessels, but moved into bioengineering um, at Imperial. So like, one of the things about London is there's all these great universities in a very small geographic area. So you can, you can really um, you know, do some exciting science. And it was great. It was a great time. But then I kind of realized that I didn't want to be in the lab and I didn't really know what I want to do. And again, a bit, a bit of luck uh, happened that a recruiter said, well, why don't you go for an interview at this company? It's sales. And I was very adamant that I didn't want to do sales. Um, But I really like finding out about people's sciences. And so she was like, we'll go for the experience. And I turned up to the interview and and then we started talking about cell therapy. And I was hooked at at that moment that these cells that I'd been studying for years and we were putting them into patients and impacting on disease. And so
0: Lindsay, real quick, what year was that? If if I can uh, (laughs) put everybody on blast here. (laughs) Uh,
1: so that was
0: a while that was ago, before,
1: that was a while back. And um, that was, I would say before cell and gene was fashionable, um, so yeah. back in 2011, so okay. it wasn't cell and gene, it was graft engineering and mm-hmm. it was manipulating grafts to improve the outcome in stem cell transplantation. And then, um, you know, this is, this is a bit of cell therapy history as well. I was actually in the audience at Ash when the first kind of CAR T data trials were being presented and it, it just cool. hooked me at that point. And so this company that I joined was Miltony Biotech and, you know, I was very lucky to be part of the team that rolled the prodigy out into the field and, um, you started getting it working in, in things like CAR T and, and other cell therapy indications. And it was, it was great. So I, I was there for, well, this is aging, uh, about mm-hmm. eight years. Um, okay. And, you know, I had a hand in a lot of cell therapy process development and looking at different cell types. And, and really, it really wasn't a sales role. It was very much a sales role combined with technical support of this, right. you know, really exciting first in man uh, clinical trials. And, you know, we didn't know if they were going to work, but then they started working. And, and now we're having to think about how do we scale this stuff stuff out? So then I kind of moved and I, I sort of see my career moving further and further away from being the customer to being the salesperson, to building the person that's involved in building the technology and bringing it into the market. And so I um, joined a Biotechni, who were building out their cell and gene therapy uh, team at that point, and started in Europe, uh, built out the kind of commercial side and, and working with, you know, again, building a team there, and then got dragged into a global role working for the first time in marketing. So product marketing strategy, go-to-market strategy for a really wide portfolio of tools that could be used in cell and gene applications, whether it's uh, analytics, reagents, and other things. And then I realized that innovation's happening earlier and that the innovation's happening in startups, and and maybe I should dip my toe in in startup. And so Microfluidex is now my second startup, um, was a previous one that wasn't quite the right fit for. Then um, yeah, we are in the process of getting technology out in the wild and and first generation prototypes in people's hands, which is fun, <laughs> an exciting time for technology.
0: Yeah, great background. So much to to follow up and ask questions about. But let me just pause real quick and and lay uh, do a, do a quick background on. On, on your role at keytech and and you know your exposure to cell and gene market just in the last year or two
2: so my background is computer engineering as Andy mentioned currently I serve as the director of strategy at keytech um, sort of leaving you know technical, uh, implementation stuff behind I've been working with the whole executive board at keytech driving the company strategy in you know three to five years looking at capabilities we want to fill etc uh, my other hat we also wear lots of hats at key my other hat uh, that I wear at keytech is project manager so currently you know in the past year or so uh, I've been working on this uh, program that's in the cell and gene therapy space uh, for a client um, offering a novel way, a platform uh, that can perform cell isolation. It's been a very exciting uh, program at KeyTech. Uh, I think we're a great fit for cell and gene therapy just because of our background in implementing all kinds of devices, very complex devices, in some cases in the in vitro diagnostic di- space. And then we can leverage a lot of those experience. Into this new space, uh, really helping the the clients to achieve their goals.
0: Yeah, I would add just bringing that experience, like you are, Lindsay, working with global companies and innovating or developing larger platforms, but bringing that to the wild west. Not to uh, confuse our our European colleagues and the American uh, or European audience and our American audience, but you know, just like what should we do? You know, like you have to have that bigger picture of what it takes when the product's on the market. To drive some of these early decisions. So, so Lindsay, let's let's jump right into uh, Microfluid X. Describe the products that you guys are offering and 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 why.
1: Yeah. So um, at MFX, we are well, we're currently in development. So there's no product in the field, which is actually quite a pleasant place to be. I mean, <laughs> right. I I've, you know, I've I've been involved with a lot of technologies, and we bring them into the market with this sort of mentality sometimes of build it and they will come. And actually, it, you know, being able to bring first generation technologies in and say, is this what the market wants? Is this what you need? Is is a really nice place to sit. And, you know, I'm sure it's something that, that, that you guys sort of probably advise all the time to companies like us, like, get your minimum viable product out there and see if it works. And... So what we're building is we are building a core technology around bioreactors and these are very simple bioreactors that we know can scale. So we start in a couple of mills, and you can optimize your biology and then we know that we can take those to much larger volumes in kind of a copying pasting way but not in individual units but actually one larger unit. So a truly scalable bioreactor and then we're overlaying Um, Complexity over that. So, we're overlaying automation so we can control when you add things, when you remove things. But we're also overlaying sensing technology so you actually understand what's going on in there. And we're doing that from obviously very small volumes to these large volumes. So, it means that you can really start to optimize process in small volume, understand it, and then drive it to where you need it for manufacturing. And, 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 you know, again, I think that's where large data sets. AI will come in. And really, you know, I think with where we are in cell therapy, we've got some great therapies out there. We we know it works, but actually the biology is still super complex. It's still very, very early in the development of the biology and, you know, we've got a long way to go. So having these platforms that are truly scalable is something that's been really important to me. So I'm, I'm actually really excited about this one.
0: Likewise. So just quick question for you. And it looks like you have a question as well. So, um, you know, being an engineer by training, uh, I guess we all are here or uh, scientists in, in a way, I guess, what is the core IP? I find myself wondering that um, you mentioned, you know, this whole suite, I mean, maybe it's just the symphony of everything working together. And that's okay. I'm just curious, like, what's the the kind of the, the core IP that that kind of is your moat in a way?
1: Well, it's creating a system that cells can grow in and you can actually understand what the cells are doing in that system. Um, and yeah, the, the scalable nature of it. There's very few technologies. If you if you go and talk to a cell therapy developer, there's always this kind of gap between what you can do in R&D with very manual systems, with plates, with flasks, and what you can do in the clinic, which is you're trying to automate that. You're trying to bring it into platforms that don't have these scaled-down solutions. So you're having to go through an optimization phase that is involving large-scale technology, which comes with high-cost associated with it and obviously, you know, why redevelop a process if you don't have to. So that's really where I think where a lot of the, but also in the clever stuff that we do around it in the automation and bringing together these platforms.
2: Lindsay, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think you... I I love talking to veterans like you in this market just to get your insight, you know, for being in this market before it was even a market. Very different time then. (laughs) I love just getting the insight here. You know, I I think based on our experience, we also see very similar things, right? So, I mean, the the challenges for all the therapeutics, all 500 of them out there, is they all have a great product, but the process development takes so much, and it's so manual. It's everybody has, you know, a 12-step process to a final product, and there's an instrument for every single thing. So every time you move to an instrument or move environment, you have to start over uh, on the process development to get to something repeatable and reliable. So I love this idea that you have one instrument that can work in the lab, but also can help you scale up. You don't have to change anything. It really helps you scaling up. Um, you know, scaling and automation is what we hear day in and day out, what is needed, right? The main driver for this market that reduce the cost, make things accessible to patients. So I really love this angle that microfluidics is taking on is being able to scale in one instrument.
1: It's what captured me. It's what got me on board. You know, I I do remember meeting the CEO, and I did one of their subject matter interviews early on about what should a technology look like for cell and gene, and I sort of came with this microfluidics ideas, and I was like. Hmm okay. All right. Well, good luck. And, but do come back to me in a few years when you have something. And it was, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exciting time now giving that technology out to, you know, people that we're working with and saying, have a play, tell us if it's the right fit. And if it's not, now's the time to be able to change it. Whereas if you've already got something that's ready for the market, it's too late. So I'm quite enjoying being at this early stage now.
0: So you so I saw the platform, you know, a year ago or almost a year ago at um, Facilitate Advanced Therapies. And so it's it's still sort of like a not officially launched. You're kind of just showcasing it as this is in development. Is that right?
1: Okay. Yeah, it's still very, um, very much the development. Um, you know, I think first generation prototypes, making sure that cells grow in them happily and we can do the scaling thing. And, you know, also understanding what processes really look like in the wild? Because you know, I mean, my my sort of feeling is that you know, a cell process relatively similar, but you know, we're moving towards different types of cells, different types of processes. We're moving towards maybe shorter processes. Are there things we can do around that that might be better suited to to the platform we've built? So, so it's, it's an exciting time. So, yes, no product in the market yet, but I'm trying hard. <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> very good. So uh, we're we're talking about the Explorium. Is my understanding right? Yeah. So we'll focus on that one. Um so let's get into the the meat of our podcast called Speed Data. So uh describe uh what data uh, was important for uh defining the requirements and how you went about collecting uh that data to to understand like is this the right product to launch.
1: You know, it's it's really funny where every company that I've ever worked in this is a huge discussion. And and I think You know, collecting the information is very, you have to be very careful about who you talk to. And I mean, talk to everyone is my kind of recommendation on (laughs) on how to go about doing this because everyone's going to have a different idea as to what it is they need. Also connecting the product team with the customer, with the the person who, who has the problem that you want to fix, because often, you know, the engineers will ask very different questions to what I'll ask. Um and that's quite that's quite fun getting those connections because often our engineers don't really want to talk to customers, but actually it's it's really good for them. And and we've had a lot of fun discussions recently as we're trying to define the specification of the automation and what it is that that you need to be building in and what's a nice to have, um, and, and what is what is really gonna push the needle on some of these processes. And that's been yeah. So again, we try and define it through very qualitative discussion, literally something like this podcast is like, what is it that you want? What is it the problems you're having? You know, and actually, when you look at these, um, when you look at what the market is doing, when you look at these therapies and development, sometimes you uncover all kinds of challenges that, we didn't even think was a challenge to them. So, um, you know, we talk about automation of manufacturing. And and what you find is if you don't look at it holistically, you can look at your unit operation and say, I'm going to get the best leukophoresis to cells ready to go into culture. But actually, we need to be looking at it holistically because often we just push the bottleneck. So one thing we found when you know when the prodigy was brought in is that it did a lot of great automation of things like cell selection and and some elements of culture, but we pushed a bottleneck into how do I get these complex media's made up and into the system. So actually, you might have saved all this time from having to go in the clean room and feed your cells, but now we have a bottleneck where, um, yeah, getting cell getting. Um, cytokines out of a vial, which is something you need to do in an isolator, into a bag of media. And, and actually the prep for that is several hours prep for literally something that could be very simply done by a machine, but that machine doesn't exist. We're just pushing the bottleneck if we're not looking at things in a holistic manner. Um, and again, unless you're going out and talking to the, the, the boots on the ground who are doing the doing, you'll never understand that actually you could have a product to fix this if you knew there was a problem, but you don't entirely see the whole thing in a holistic view. And I think for cell and gene therapy is, as an industry, uh, as technology develops, we really have to start looking in a more holistic viewpoint as to what is the impact of our technology gonna have? And do we need to be looking at upstream and downstream of that? Do we look at how we connect? So we're looking how, how we actually, you know, potentially collaborate with technologies because there's so many complementary technologies that could work better if we design them together.
2: Lindsay, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, from what we know, you know, the different uh, therapeutics may have somewhat different processes or everybody's process can be sort of unique, right? So for, I guess I'm just curious for microfluidics, uh, for the bioreactor side of things, uh, I, I get that. I, I think I agree that it's very important to look at things holistically. But at the end of the day, I think microfluidics settle on the bioreactor Portion of that process right so how wide of a range of different use cases do you guys have have you guys seen from talking to the customers and you know how long does it take to take to to collect that data and what do you decide to do of that wide range of
1: input so so one of the beauties of having a very simple core technology which is this I mean you know effectively a a bioreactor is a it's like a flask, but it's not. There's, there's definitely more IP than just a flask, right? But it's a flask that we can make many different sizes. It's a flask that we a flask that we can effectively automate. So we you know, if you long as you can remove fluids and you can add fluids and you can maybe connect some of these things together and you can change the geometry and and look at how that might impact on cell behavior. I might have just submitted a poster about how you can impact transduction by changing the volumes and things that are going on. So, you know, there's, there's a lot you can do with a very simple platform. And that's why I really, really is at the core of the technology is you take the simplicity and then you can put different cells in it. We know that we can grow adherence cells and we can grow suspension cells. And it's just a difference in the plumbing as to what you do as to how you add and remove medias in those situations. Um, yeah, and again, as long as you're monitoring what's going on there. So there's there's different things that you will do with different cells, but ultimately it's a vessel to put cells in, and, and depending on the cell, the flexibility around what you do to it is, is already built in because of the simplicity of the core technology. Very, very simple, basic structure. And then the instrumentation is effectively, so I like to call it plumbing, but keep the cells where you want them and then plumb everything else around it
0: another question similar to lays uh but maybe a little bit more specific how do you decide on for example having 30 bioreactors instead of 5 instead of 60 you know like and 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 once you make that decision it's a 3 year runway let's say until you get on the market um yeah. so i don't know just for our audience you know can you if you're open to sharing like what went into that type of that decision
1: so i mean that's you know, what we've got on the, on the website, oh, spoiler alert, it's a bit of a vision and there's a part. I've seen it in
0: person. No, it's, it's not a vision. It's an actual product.
1: Well, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like it. Um, but it helps you visualize what it could be. You know, we talk about DOE design of experiments and how you need to collect large volumes of data. when you have these very clever, well thought out experiments. And, you know, I, I haven't been in the lab in quite some time, but mm-hmm. it's like, what, what's the magic number for for DOE? And so, you know, I'm I'm an old school scientist and I would say, well, we did everything in triplicate. So we're coming around to maybe a magic number for an initial system that might be, again, it comes back to this simplicity, right? If we know that the bioreactor is this simple unit, how many we put together in a system, um, we can decide on a bit later. Um, but I think for our initial early prototypes, we're looking at a system of nine, because we could then do three different conditions I and three it. triplicates, which is a nice number, I think, for a scientific experiment.
0: Okay, yeah. So you use statistics. Uh, my high school and college stats professors will be thrilled to hear this. It's, that's what's driving you know some of these architectures. So uh, f- a follow on, you know, it's the cost, right, to to implement all these different bioreactors. So. Uh, the next question, you know, on speed of data is, you know, how? what data are you collecting to, you know, inform the, the price point, you know, ultimately that your buyers are willing to spend for this sophisticated tool?
1: So pricing is always a controversial conversation, right? You know, and you can totally overthink it as well, because I'm, I'm going to sound like probably... I think that the the Americanism is is real estate, um, but the price (laughs) is what someone's willing to pay, right? I'm going to sound like an estate agent, okay? Mm -hmm. The price is what someone's willing to pay, and until (laughs) they pay it. Right, right. (laughs) But in order to get a price, you've got to understand the value that you bring. And that means, again, I'll put my marketing hat on at this point. That means understanding your end user, the person who is going to be using this. If you're developing a technology that is going to fit within... Um, so we're looking at we're looking at automation of cell culture here. If we consider it from the perspective of, well, okay, cell and gene therapy, um, you know, we're, we're meeting a real unmet need here in that scalability of translation. That adds considerable value um, to what we're building. But if we were going after a platform that was, you know, automating something that actually if, if we're looking at a non-industrial scientist, if we're not saving them time, if we're, if we're saving time, but actually for an academic, actually time is is sort of a bit less relevant. It depends on who is going to be the, the customer of the product. And again, it depends on the product. If you've got something that you're going to market with, and actually it probably feels a bit like it might be a commodity product. Then you're going to have to look at the benchmark. You're going to have to look at what the market will accept. You can't come in at three times the price of something that does the same thing. So all that has to be factored in. But ultimately, it's down to what value do we bring? And that depends on knowing the customer and 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 going after, you know, maybe you go after a niche market first and then you spread it out. Or you go. So, yeah, I mean, it's always a controversial discussion whatever products you're bringing to market, <laughs>
0: I'm sure you're enjoying it at least at microfluidic X uh, versus, am I pronouncing that right, by the way? Microfluid X. Um, I've it, given yeah. up trying to Micro- pronounce
1: it. Um, so you must be wrong. do tell me for saying this, but the co-founders are French. And when you say it with a French accent, it sounds like microfluidics, which sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say it. So I'm sticking with MFX. And, yeah. and that's that's my story and I'm not changing it. So MFX <laughs> is much easier to say.
0: Okay. Well, my, my, my comment was, I'm sure you're enjoying that dialogue uh there as opposed to you know those global companies you mentioned milteni and um you know biotechni where it takes a year (laughs) of sort of meetings and slide decks and more meetings and a couple conferences and then oh another year (laughs) uh to to agree on a on a price target which then there's your market requirements and then you got your product requirements and i I
1: don't know i don't think it's that bad sometimes all right has been pretty good maybe i just go in and go i think this is what we should pay but again there's a structure to it right you're going out there and you're saying well where am i positioning this product and and actually because you're bigger teams and not just one person trying to work this out you've got a team that will pull that information together and you can and you can look at it um you know but i I do think it's down to and i am not this is i'm not ashamed to ask a cheeky question to you know people that we're doing voice of customer with which is what do you think and again you know there is a there's when you're adding complexity into things so you could make a you could make a cell culture chamber bioreactor um to grow cells and does it need to have all the automation for you to see if your cells will grow in it well actually at the moment we're, we're doing everything manually does it need sensors in it if it's just an early look see experiment and so then you know do you layer over that complexity and and then you realize the value of that complexity. So it may be that there are different skews, or you know, there are different there are different options depending on what price point you feel most comfortable at. All to be thought about when we have a product that's near the market. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely things that we're we're considering.
0: Yeah, it's a on the on, on the tool side. So I look at at our world like you got the tools that are like research use only, and then you have like clinical products where you know there's reimbursement and clear pricing and and competition and. They both have their pros and cons, you know, like uh, on the tools side, you don't necessarily have to worry about FDA, you know, you're you're kind of just getting the market fast, but your risk is, hey, no one's going to pay for it. Flip side, on the device side, you know, yes, you got to go through regulatory approvals longer, um, but you know, there's an upside or a more, I guess, mature market, uh, known market that you're selling into, you think you'll sell into. So it's interesting.
2: Sometimes I feel like people may not know they need that product yet, right? So um, they could get away with a fairly simple bioreactor, uh, but, you know, until they realize they need a better one, it might be too late. It, well, it, you know, extend their time to market, coming back to the theme of this podcast, you know, they're not going to get their data out there by the time they realize they have an issue and they have to fix that issue. So I definitely think... I mean, at least for me, you know, like just thinking of something that people, everybody uses, like the, the AirPods, right? So like I, old school, I used the wired AirPods, uh, earphones for a long time. And I didn't think I really need wireless AirPods until I got it for Christmas. And now I can't live without them. You know, it's <laughs> like, I could do with a, a wired version, but until you use something, something, some different that brings value that you didn't really, really realize, um, you didn't think you needed it. So I think in that sense, you know, especially if you guys are bringing the scalability value and being able to get more data out of the bioreactor, sometimes people, scientists in the lab may not really realize the value that you guys bring readily. And I'm sure that's that's something that you guys always work on is, you know, demonstrate the value that you can bring um, to them. Uh, but I do think it's a very clever idea is a platform and that has wide applicability uh, that brings a lot of value and gets you people more data into people's hand
1: yeah, I mean I think we we don't we don't know what we don't know uh, I, I mean and biology is so complicated, even down to simple things like we're looking at um if you think about in your research lab and you're using a flask to the variability that just having a human operator. Say I want to feed my cells. The difference between feeding my cells in the perfect temperature for them, the perfect conditions in an automated manner in an incubator, and I don't move them to the hood where I then take the cap off the bottle and then I add some media with a pipette. You know, the sheer stresses that are happening on those cells by changing media in that manner, the temperature changes. We don't measure it. We don't know what impact it really has, but it could be having an impact. And and so that's why trying to precisely control the environment these cells live in when they're in a culture environment is yeah, you know, it's, it's really important to me um, that we start looking at that because I think it you know it's sort of small changes can can have big impacts.
0: We might just use that quote, Lindsay, and 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 we that, that's it. We're done. <laughs> uh. All right, so let, let's get into the, the lightning round, which is not quite a lightning round. Uh, you don't need to answer with one or one or two words, but um, and so so um, you know for you know my my kids and my family that that watch this, I want you to answer this one maybe with like maybe not a, like a scientist's um, bent, but more of like you know what what cell and gene therapy areas or disease states um, are, are most ripe, you know. For commercial success, uh, so so now na- so now and then you know in the next couple of years,
1: it's really hard to to say where's, where where we're going to see commercial success. For so I had I'm, I've been quite lucky. I was at a a meeting earlier this week looking at early innovative startups. So they're coming out of academia, and you know the thing that really grasped me is that you know back in the day we were looking at these unmet needs of really you know life-threatening illnesses. Um, So like oncology has been kind of the beachhead of which we've, we've, we've gone with, with CAR T. And, and now we're looking at, okay, so we've got therapies into patients, these complex therapies into patients in, in these indications. And, you know, we've got licensed medicines for them. And now we're seeing it roll out into the more potentially chronic conditions. So I sat through a series of talks about um, epilepsy, hearing loss, Huge indications where there is still great unmet need. That the, the conditions I studied as a scientist back in the day, the rheuma- rheumatology, um, the rheumatic diseases, that you know, the, the vasculitis of this world, the lupuses of this world, these can still be life-threatening conditions if they're refractory to the treatments that are currently available. And so, seeing cell therapies rolling out into those, you know, we, we've seen. Recent strides towards Parkinson's, towards diabetes, these are all in the pipeline. And, and I think that's hugely exciting, if from a technology perspective, slightly concerning that there's really big numbers of patients at the end of these. And do we have the tools that will enable us to, to get to that scale?
0: Uh, we've glossed over, I think, in a really important point on, on this entire episode, which is, at least my impression is, you know, cell and, and gene therapies are curing these diseases, not treating, curing, which is remarkable. And it's a a complete phase shift from, you know, medicine as we've known it. Um, So very interesting. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily need to be your Onco sort of patient. There there are plenty of other indications.
1: That's a huge point, actually, that, uh, you know, when I first started in this industry, we didn't know if these therapies were going to work. Then they started working. And then literally in the last five years was we started saying curing. That is I, to have seen that in my career is is incredible for me.
2: Yeah. I, I will add also from somebody who does not have the deep science background, you know, just peripherally involved in technology, you know, looking at it's, it's curing for one thing, which is already mind blowing. It's almost like black magic, but it's a lot of times it's one dose, <laughs> one treatment cured. Right. I mean, that's like, We've been dealing with cancer for hundreds of years, right? People, it, this, this has been the medical journey and it really is mind blowing. We're getting to this point that it's one dose cured cancer. And you can uh, really apply that from now from rare diseases to more applicable that has a lot of patient base, as Lindsay said. And it's very exciting as a whole sector yeah it's
1: i mean when when we think where it's like how much progress has been made in the last decade with these therapies it is and and we're moving into a whole new era of them i mean i again a trend towards can we do this in vivo do we even need the cells as as a vehicle for bringing these changes and that that's, that's pretty incredible. too. it might put me out
0: of a job, but yeah. I, I think we're okay for now. <laughs> well, you know, Well, uh, AI will put us out of a job before that's then, true. anyways, Lindsay. Yeah. All right. So my glass is now half empty. Why, why are these therapies so expensive? And what, what can we do to reduce the price of these therapies so that when there is promise, it can, they can actually get to the, to the patients.
1: You know, the most important thing about these therapies, it's efficacious and safety, and, and they work for the patients. With that does come the cost, the, the regulatory cost, the, the fact these are complex living medicines, and they are very small batches. You need very skilled operators at the moment to to make these therapies. But, I mean, I, I think that's part of the kind of the, the challenge of this entire sector. It, it's such an incredibly complex ecosystem of individuals and organizations that can add small elements. Everyone has a little piece in this puzzle to make this. Even thinking about like the small changes at the front end at the patient and, you know, do we bring the patient closer to the manufacturing center? Is the manufacturing center at the hospital? Because then you suddenly remove some logistics things from it. And there's all these really hugely complicated ways that we could adapt what we're doing today to where it needs to be to meet the needs of all these many, many patients. Um, so yeah, there's lots of pieces to that puzzle to, to really unpick. And, you know, I think often as, as technology developers, maybe we sit in our little bubble and think about our technology solving this one little problem. And, and I love to take that step back and go, well, actually this is my little piece of the puzzle. But, you know, I talk about this kind of whole ecosystem where if we can't get the costs down, then we can't there's not going to be a market for these therapies so the therapy developers aren't going to be able to treat the patients because the patients aren't going to pay for them so it's not just about cogs of manufacturing it's not just about making enough it's about the market actually wanting to adopt them and as someone who makes you know who engineers pieces of hardware and 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 puts plays with cells That's an incredibly big problem that I can't solve. And so it comes back to, I think, collaboration. I think having that ecosystem more tightly connected and it's not just one one thing that was going to push the needle on this. It's going to take an industry moving in the same direction.
0: Yeah, you're certainly playing your part in that. Um, you know, can you just talk real quick about the what your effort there, the the CGT circle and what that's all about, <laughs> and how you're helping kind of create this tighter knit uh, ecosystem?
1: It, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the CGT circle is a grassroots networking. Basically, we we saw a gap for um women in the industry to become better connected. And there are opportunities when we go to conferences and, and and networking and such like. But we wanted to, and you know, certainly in my career, if I'd realised twenty years ago the importance of my network, and I thought, well, is there a way that we can you know educate the next generation coming through of this? What can we do? Um, I obviously can't do everything because I have all these things that are juggling. How can we? How can we do it? And we came up with the concept of a decentralised approach to this. So the CGT Circle core team is kind of overseeing like the brand and, you know, supporting, but supporting small commu- communities to put on events for the local community. And so we've hosted about 10 events over the last year, um, with people across, women across the globe. And, um, it's really gearing up to be a really exciting 24 for us because, um, suddenly the, the industry's kind of got grasped the concept and thought, yeah, why not? It doesn't have to be a big event. It can be a small event. And it's connecting MSD students to VPs in an informal manner funny. and learning from each other. And certainly it's it's really been a lot of fun. And, yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's something that's on a roll at the moment. Definitely. And, again, that kind of ecosystem, that collaboration that we need to drive the industry forwards, being able to connect, you know, across the disciplines and 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 that's how we're gonna solve these challenges, I think.
2: Yeah, exactly. Lindsay, I was just gonna say that exact same thing that, you know, I think when you bring people in different positions and they talk about their perspective and then you can put a holistic picture together. And that's where innovation and great ideas happen that change the market, right? It really does require everybody's input. And I love the idea of forming communities. I mean I think from just different sectors like community, uh, like college, uh, recruiting, retention, which I'm involved with. We see the community makes such a big difference in all those perspectives. Even at Key Tech, you know, we feel like we're in a pretty, uh, close knit community there and definitely requires that community to support each other, uh, and to learn from each other. So I am a big fan of the CGT circle and hopefully one day that, you know, it'll be in the U.S. I know you, you launched it in Boston recently. We couldn't make it, but one day maybe, uh, we'll be able to join or host one of the CGT circle event. At Kitek. Yeah, you should. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm gonna take you off on the that offline. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: not difficult. It's so super easy. And it makes such a difference to um just I mean my own experience. Um I have friend, I have friends with some great leaders in this industry. And then I suddenly realized that two of my go-to women didn't know each other. And I was like, How you're working practically in the same building. So let's go and grab a coffee. And now you guys know each other. And and that's how collaboration happens, right? And and yeah, we're working on We're working. And again, in this space, like we're all working on very different things, but actually there's a lot of similarities between maybe some of the therapies are in development and yes, you can't share your secret sauce, but if you know someone who can help someone, that's going to move the needle faster.
0: That's great. Yeah. Congrats on that success. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely uh, be at one of those events at at some point for sure. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end of uh, the hour. Um, So have a couple of kind of fun questions at the end. Um, just, I thought it'd be, be fun. So uh, Lindsay, you know, we were chatting, um, you were coming to the U S and you, you, you were saying, Hey, looking for recommendations for restaurants. And, uh, <laughs> or, you know, we were, dial- yeah, we were talking and you said your kids loved the cheesecake factory, <laughs> which, you know, all right. I, I, <laughs> why? <laughs> uh, why
1: do I love the cheesecake? It's, there's a long long history with me and cheesecake factories. So I think I went to like my first one, I don't know, like 20 years ago when I was, I don't know, on holiday in the U S and being a typical Brit I was like, yeah, we'll have entrees. Like we'll have starter. Cause you know, that's what you do. And then realized that we literally ordered a starter and couldn't eat anything else because <laughs> there was just so much food. And, and so it was a bit of a joke that I could never get to cheesecake. And I
0: that's see, an that's it. So, uh, uh, I told you before, I've n- I've never been to, to England, never been to London. And uh, my wife got Taylor Swift tickets in London. So uh, it, it looks like uh, we'll be there uh, next summer. Uh, so my question back to you is, what, what is the Cheesecake Factory of England?
1: <laughs> we don't have one. Or, you uh, know, something
0: like that. Like, what is the tackiest... Not to not to insult you with the, <laughs> you, but what's sort of the, the tackiest kind of uh, tourist trap, I guess.
1: The tourist trap. Well, you're going to have to go to Leicester Square.
0: Leicester Square. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's noted. Leicester Square. Yeah, I mean we have a lot of the same chain chain restaurants. I'm trying to think. You obviously have to go past Buckingham Palace as well. You know, we have we have all this. It's literally within the same kind of. This is back to the geography of London. It's all in a really teeny tiny place. Fish and chips, I guess, is our national dish. You're going to have to have that.
0: Mm-hmm. Do, you want to know
1: something? Do you want to know a really embarrassing, Lindsay, um, American junk food story? Sure. So Cinnabon has opened its first outlet in the UK two weeks ago. Ooh, delicious. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah it's all downhill from there yeah yes, they're yes, addicting
1: just yes, who may have already picked some up for her kids when <laughs> just, she was just in out in of london. curiosity is there a cheesecake factory in london no there should be <laughs> <laughs> this is why i go there when i'm in the u.s <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> so uh so also um next time you come to the u.s with, with your family lay i know has been to how many national parks uh what are your top you know four or five U.S. national parks lay for Lindsay and our, our global audience when they come to the U.S.?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, I love the national parks. It deserves its own episode. <laughs> okay. <on the> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I think on the East Coast, uh, the Smoky Mountains is one of the, the biggest national parks. And it's it's beautiful. It's like uh under radar that most people don't talk about it when they talk about iconic national parks. But it is a gorgeous place to be. I would highly recommend that on the East Coast. Uh, it's in the Tennessee, um, North Carolina area. I've never been to the Everglades. So maybe that when we're down in Miami, I don't know if there's a chance for us to, to sneak away and go to the <laughs> Everglades if it's close by. Uh, but the iconic ones are great if you haven't had a chance to visit. It's, it's, you know, the, the poster child of American landscape beauties. Um, the Glacier National Park, Yellowstone, uh, Yosemite, it looks like a fake picture. I've got pictures and everyone's like, is that a backdrop? It's like, no, it's actually just yeah, Yosemite Valley in the background. Um, Sequoia National Parks to see those redwoods before they're gone is, you know, one of the highlights as well. Uh, Grand Canyon, if you're into hiking a lot. <laughs> that's definitely- no, I've actually been to some of these when yeah. I was, again, Back in the
1: day, I did a tour of the U.S. when Mm. I finished my undergrads and we, we tracked around, like we kind of went, where should we go? We did quite a few of those.
2: Oh, good. Well, you already got a leg leg up. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing those insights. And Lindsay, uh, I'll take you up on the fish and chips recommendation and um, see if we can connect when I'm over there. You should
1: definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so she's playing in London.
0: Yes, you don't know this, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I have a tween. My My daughter's a teenager, and she's obsessed, so yeah.
1: Is she coming with you or are you leaving her at home?
0: No, she's coming. I'm not actually going to the, I'm oh, not like going a to the show. Trip. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to Taylor Swift, just to be clear. My <laughs> wife and daughter are going. There's
2: <laughs> but nothing isn't... wrong with that, Andy. Yeah. yeah. No.
0: Um, she's We're all Swifties performer.
2: underneath. Yeah. I thought it was you and your wife
1: coming over to see Taylor Swift. I wasn't going to say anything, but now <laughs> it makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, actually I want to see Paramore. She's opening it for Taylor, but that's another story. Okay. Um, all right. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for the insights uh, on the episode. And, you know, it, like I said, I think it's it's great that that um, the impact you've made so far um, in your career and, and you're really like you've sharpened your tool um, to hopefully to the success of Microfluid X or MFX. <laughs> you've got to talk to whoever's in Commercial there. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, really thanks again for, for coming on and um, excited to catch up sometime soon.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Look forward to catching up when you're in London. Great talking to you, Lindsay. It's so insightful. It's always uh, a pleasure to speak with you.
1: It's a pleasure speaking with you guys too.
2: (laughs) Always fun. All
0: right. right. Thanks everybody. Until next time, talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe And please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.